Disclaimer. The views expressed by Scott Bronner are solely his and do not reflect those of the U.S. State Department. Welcome back to After Action. I'm Chad Hammer. Today, we're going to talk more about OSAC, the Overseas Security Advisory Council. I'm here today with Scott Bronner. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with OSAC and how it started? My involvement in OSAC began back in 2009. Really, if I, if I trace it to its genesis, it started in 2008. I was serving as the security director for a large mission agency that had a kidnapping in southern Afghanistan in 2008. And I'd never heard of OSAC, right. uh, but began looking for support and resourcing towards the resolution of, of this kidnapping. And that's when I first heard about Overseas Security Advisory Council. Joining that organization in 2008, attending their annual briefing in 2009, it became pretty clear that there was a place for faith-based organizations, or there should be a place for faith-based organizations inside of OSAC. And that's where I really became engaged, pressing with several other of my colleagues for the start of a faith-based working group, as it was called at the time. Today, it's called the Faith-Based Sector Committee. So just to, to bring people up to speed a bit, OSEC is part of diplomatic security, but the meat of OSEC is the membership, which are primarily companies and organizations working overseas, but with an American nexus, right? OSEC is this unique space for public-private engagement where you have you know, the public sector with State Department as well as other parts of the U.S. government that come together in a space to engage with security directors from companies, you know, nonprofit organizations, international organizations working all over the world. And when you think about the work of the American citizen abroad and you think about U.S. foreign policy, this is not just a place where we engage with security. This is a place to empower those who are the face of often American foreign policy, American citizens abroad. So in your case, we're talking about Americans who are overseas doing mission work or somehow assisting in that way? We're involved in many different facets of work from humanitarian work to uh, medical to evangelistic work, education. Faith-based is very, very broad. But at any time, there are well over 150,000 American citizens involved in faith-based charitable work overseas at any time. Right. So these are people who are they're obviously not government employees. Mm -hmm. These are people overseas of their own free will. They're volunteers. They're missionaries or mm -hmm. maybe funded by a, a church organization of a kind. Right. So much like those working for American corporations overseas, they don't have special status as diplomats. They're effectively private citizens operating under local laws. Exactly. And so they have security concerns when working in more inhospitable environments, you might say. Right. And sometimes missionaries can catch a bad rap for some of the places that they go because they are high threat environments. But sometimes there's a misperception because most of the missionaries that I engage with who live in high-threat environments are very well steeped in the culture. They're fluent in the language. They understand what their vulnerabilities are to the threats, so they're taking steps to lower their risk by lowering their vulnerability to the threat space. So bring it back to OSEC and your first relationship there. So you had somebody who you were in charge of protecting or at least facilitating security for, right. and they got, they got taken. Right. So what was OSEC for you then? What did that look like? Well, at that time, it was meeting, at that time, I think the OSAC director, I think way back then, it was, it was Bill Miller, mm -hmm. who was just fantastic, opened up and 
really introduced me to what the power of OSAC uh, is and was very helpful to introduce me to, to not only different members of the State Department who were engaged, but to the private sector. Because in a lot of these cases, you know, kidnapping and others, American citizens have to remember the U.S. Embassy is not the cavalry coming over the hill to rescue you. I mean, that's the reality. However, what is facilitated through the embassy, and more particularly OSAC, is collaborative relationships where people can work together towards a common interest and, and in this case, resolution of a crime. What this has looked like for me in the field when I'm overseas at RSO is a pretty active collaboration of businesses, faith-based groups, NGOs, coming together to share information, intelligence, contacts. Is that right? Yeah, it is. A a word that can often be taken out of of context, a safe space. Okay, This is a a place where companies or organizations that are often competing against each other can come in and collaborate together towards, again, common interest, and that is safety and security. Because the reality is, if an American citizen is assaulted, murdered, kidnapped, it never happens in a vacuum. You know, it has ripple effects across the broader community that impacts all of those companies and all those different sectors that that collaborate together. And when there's that understanding that need to be shared, that allows us to work in a way that's not only functional, but really effective towards the resolution of whoever has a problem at the time. And I can tell you that when you when you get to a very high threat environment, the government restrictions on government employees are often quite severe because we try to be pretty conservative with our resources and our people. So it's tremendously effective for me to have eyes and ears out in the local community much further afield than I might get as an RSO otherwise. That's a tremendous benefit to RSOs, for folks there. When you look at the the regional security officer and and the role of the regional security officer, I mean, it's part police chief, part sheriff, and I'm sure there's a lot of other ways you could explain it as well, given your experience. But from the outside looking in, when we see the RSO, we don't see the intelligence community. What we see is, is law enforcement. And in the same way that you have a neighborhood watch that, you know, as we teach people, if you see something, say something. Well, the question is, who are you saying that to? And what OSAC provides, and even through the RSO, the, the country councils, is a place to share that information in a way that you can push it, not for the sake of intelligence collection, but for the safety and security of American citizens abroad. It's really important to understand the differences between these, because in trying to do safety and security and to provide that for American citizens, that's not an intelligence action. That's a law enforcement action. Right. So helping people to understand that, understanding the old warden program, and you'd have these guys out and they'd have the radios and they'd call in when they, when they had a problem or when they saw something, that was done in order to provide safety and security for other American citizens in that area. Well, that's what's happening today, only it's, it's much more advanced, sharpened, maybe even professional, the resources and tools that the web give us to be able to collaborate with Signal, WhatsApp. It allows us to take that old school warden program and turn it into something fantastic today. I believe the initial impetus for this conversation was your involvement or OSEC's involvement with your group in the incidents in, in the country of Chad. Just like Sudan, there's, there's been a lot of issues in Chad. 
In 2008, you had rebels from Darfur that pushed west to N'Djamena to unseat the Chadian government. In that particular case, I had nearly 40 American citizens that got caught behind enemy lines, so to speak, and, and needed evacuation. And key relationships allowed for me to connect with the right people at the right time to move those 40 people to the airport and then to fly out with another nation's ambassador uh, to Gabon to get them to safety. Again, back to those key relationships. Most recently in Chad with the death of Idris Deby, the president, the former president, there was an initial thought that was being you know, pushed around, we need to evacuate. I mean, that always seems to be the, the standard, you know, push the button and, and evacuate. And that's not always what's necessary. And that's, that's what happened here. But people who were in, you know, various places, 300, 400 miles from N'Djamena, they were reporting in what they were seeing and hearing, and that everything was pretty much, you know, the status quo, and they weren't even needing to shelter in place or to put their go bags together. So collecting that information through OSAC, again, the, the Google groups that help, those collaborative efforts, we were able to make a decision to say, hey, maybe sheltering in place, standing fast, let's wait and watch versus this everybody run for the door. And that was the correct decision in N'Djamena, you know, this most recent go around. So you saved time and resources, but also risk of injury because an evacuation comes with its own risks. People often relate home to safety, but in their desire to get to what they consider safety, they can put themselves at greater risk. The number one killer of, of missionaries is not Al-Qaeda, it's car accidents. And when we think about how we put ourselves at risk on a daily basis, you know, we can become myopic at these other threats, never realizing that it, it's, it's just this general threat every day, these insulary sources of threat that really are the worst. I can imagine trying to put everybody on the road and trying to get them from point A to point B and just the risks it causes in itself versus, you know, sheltering in place, waiting, because from the information we're receiving from other OSAC members is it's not as bad as we think. Talk to me a little bit about uh, your experience in Guatemala. You've got anywhere between 70 to 90 roadblocks where different members of civil society and others are trying to block commerce, you know, in order to bring pressure on, on the president. Well, what does that have to do with American citizens? Well, really not much at all. Uh, in particular, Americans aren't being targeted for violence outside of the typical levels of crime in, in Guatemala. But what that does create is a real issue for being able to travel from point A to point B, in particular to get from somewhere in an outer department back to Guatemala City to fly out of the airport. Right. And that's where the majority of challenges I've seen have arisen just this last week alone, we've had three calls to assist with evacuation or really just re relocation in the country. And so I've personally used the Latin America Google group and, and started asking questions. Hey, is anybody else having this problem? And what we found was that it was very nuanced. In other words, it's not that, oh my gosh, all of Guatemala is blocked. And again, that default setting, get out now. Right. And, and that's not what it was. In fact, most people in Guatemala City are operating on their usual basis without many issues. And, you know, there's food and work's going on. Whereas those who are sitting out further into the departments, coming up with unique ways to get them moved from point A to point B has been very important. And the great thing has been I've been able to pick other people's brains on how they're moving in the departments in order to help our people be able to move, you know, from, from location to location. So you're getting updates basically in real time. That's right. Wow. 
and it's really helpful to, to know whether someone in OSAC has that information or has a link to that information. Because there, there are regularly updated websites with information on these different roadblocks. So when I can say, hey, does anybody know about the roadblocks? And the next thing I know is that five minutes later, I got an email with a link that goes to all of the roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Man, how useful is that? And yeah. then turn around and put that somewhere else and give it to folks. And it's just really helpful. Have an incredible speed, too. So how did you find yourself in this work? Joined the Army out of high school. Went on to serve in the 1st Ranger Battalion and uh, was in the Gulf War in 91. But, you know, being faith-based, God called me into ministry while I was on active duty. So I used the GI Bill to go to college and ultimately to seminary and began engaging in international uh, mission work way back in 1998. Started our first nonprofit back then and security training, security management was just sort of integral to who we are. It's in our DNA. So we, we weren't a security organization. I mean, we were taking high school and college kids overseas. You had also mentioned that it's a good gateway for you to reach the greater State Department yep. via your RSO. I'm sure most RSOs know of OSAC and the great resource that it is, but, but how do I really engage with that? Because not every country has a, a country council that's run by OSAC, and I would encourage any RSO to look into that because what OSAC does for, for the RSO is to provide them with critical information about what's going on in their backyard. Right, but if you're working in Country X and you get a hold of someone at the embassy in Country Y, mm-hmm. you can also go through OSAC or through your RSO that way. That's right. Sometimes calling the, the front desk isn't always the, the best way to go. I mean, it is what it is. Right. But when you have a relationship in OSAC so that they can either do a, a virtual introduction or a phone call to connect you, email, that is a much quicker way I found to get help from the embassy than just trying to call the front desk. So you've had quite a bit of experience with OSAC. You've played a pivotal role in engaging with faith-based groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you see the future for OSAC? What do we go in the next 10 years? The next 10 years of OSAC, I, I think, is critical. The world is getting smaller. In some ways, we might say that the, the problems are getting more acute. If the threat landscape is going to, to become more complex, then there's even more reason for us to learn ways to lower our vulnerability to the threats in that threat landscape. That's what I think OSAC's going to do. Look, good security management is what helps to decrease your vulnerability to threats. Good contingency planning, crisis management decreases the impact of those threats you know, in the form of a critical incident. OSAC does both. Left of bang, helping develop policies and procedures for your organization. Having good information and perspective to help to inform decision making lowers your vulnerability. But when crisis comes, and we, we look at what's going on in Israel right now, the collaboration that's taking place on you know, critical information sharing from what bridges are open? You know, is the King Hussein Bridge open? Or is the airport open? What's the best route to the airport? That is real-time information that's decreasing the impact of this critical incident on American citizens in their decision-making towards either hibernation, evacuation, etc. You can't pay for something like that. And I see in the next 10 years, as technology continues to improve, that that collaboration is going to improve. And I I think what you'll see, if I could be so bold, is that with all the work that State Department does, 
some of the most positive work that will be promoted or reported on is going to be the work of OSAC and how this collaborative effort inside the U.S. Department of State has saved American lives. Well, Scott, I really want to thank you for your time and thank you for telling our audience a bit more about maybe one of the lesser-known programs of MNDS. Well, thank you, Chad. It's been really good to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.